Hi, everybody. Happy to see you back again in uh, news, uh, the bigger picture. And this has become a kind of annual thing where Alistair Doyle and, 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 and I are uh, together welcoming you and talking you through the news, all kinds of environment, environmental news and climate news and news about resources and renewables and wildlife and anything that anything else that comes up. And talking about wildlife as a first kind of news item we had for this week uh, was uh, the baby boom of koalas that researchers who are working for the survival of koalas uh, had found uh, when they were doing research in eastern Victoria. And it was a, a team of uh, WWF Australia uh, that were doing uh, research in East Gippland. And they came with uh, the result of, of uh, 20 koalas that they briefly had to capture for their research. And of course, that let's uh, set free as soon as possible afterwards that 14 out of those uh, 20 were females and nine were carrying joeys. Joeys is what Australians use for little baby uh, koalas, but I think they use it also for uh, little wombats and little kangaroos if I'm not uh, mistaken. So that is a very high percentage, but that comes against the background of, of course, the terrible stories that everybody remembers from last year um, about the survival of koalas uh, and the non-survival, actually, uh, during those terrible wildfires of, of last year. And I believe, uh, but maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Alistair, I, I think koalas are now already listed endangered in quite a few states in Australia, which is a sad development, of course. Yeah, it's it's terrible, isn't it? I mean, the, the, well, this, this this story is really uplifting that they found these, uh, you know, surprising numbers of koalas, a mini baby boom, as you say, and um, they can use their genes to help uh, enrich the gene pool of koalas elsewhere and in the country, is their hope. But, um, yeah, you're right. After those wild bushfires of um, Two years ago, there were terrible images there, weren't there, of burning koalas and dead koalas. Um, these poor creatures live up in eucalyptus trees, and that's all they do pretty much all day, isn't it? It turns out that they are, you know, they sleep 20 hours a day, some of them just munching away on leaves for a few days, a few, a few hours, and then they go to sleep. So, But they're very, very charming animals. Um, I think, yeah, you're right, that there's pressure for the population is declining. I've got a feeling the last time the... The Red List, which is the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, did a survey. They listed them as vulnerable, but this is a few years ago, and the, the numbers have been declining. They estimate there were between 100,000 and half a million koalas in the wild in Australia, but since then there's been, you know, the habitat's being fragmented, and I saw that um, uh, one group, um, the Australian Koala foundation which works to preserve uh, koalas say that um, 30 percent have been lost in just the last three years so you know it's um that they, they estimate that it could be you know there could be just 32,000 as a minimum you know um uh, left which is which is terrible they're quite hard to spot though i've yeah. read researchers going out in the forest it's difficult to see them isn't it yeah, well, I know that's from history because Joseph Banks really wanted to have a few koalas and uh, he had heard about them and he had received some koala poles or the kind of cut of hands of a dead koala and he was fascinated to see a live one. So it took them 
years of searching, and it's only in, in, in the early 19th century that in, um, when, when they moved west from, 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 uh, from Sydney into the Blue Mountains, that they finally managed to get a, a live pair of koalas, which were then immediately sent uh, to Sir Joseph Banks and I. I wonder how they kept them alive on such a long trip, because the only thing they eat, as you just said, is, is uh, a special kind of eucalyptus leaves, which is um, biological, or, or let's say uh, in, in um, evolution, it's a special development. They started eating something that no other animal can digest, and, and that is their way of surviving. They're just being nice and very cuddly and sit, sitting in those trees and mainly sleeping all day, and then they chew some leaves and they need the rest of the 20 hours of the day to, 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 to get their... Uh, whatever they need out of those leaves to uh, to stay alive. So that's so yeah, they're they're wonderful. I remember I was once in Sydney and I I saw one in a kind of kind of zoo or something there on on the waterfront. And there was this one woman who was taking care of the koala and had it on its arm and was cuddling the koala. And I got very jealous because it felt like uh, they're they're such cuddly animals. And uh, yeah, so it's um, it's it's uh, it's a sad story because I see that in in, in Queensland, New, Ze- New South Wales, and uh, and the Australian Capital ter- Territory in Canberra, uh, they are now listed endangered. So uh, so yeah, so this is a mix of positive news and and, and negative news, um, which. Uh, I think we should try to start in the future in in with with our show is starting a bit of positive news as well because there's so much negative news yeah. about the environment and uh, I, I think that's yeah. a good idea yeah because it's it's always uplifting to start off with something like this isn't it that, you know there's looking around the there's quite a lot of uh, interest worldwide in koalas isn't it and um you know I've been looking at this website called savethekoala.com where you can you know in Australia you can you can you can adopt a koala. You can plant a tree because, as they say, you know, habitat loss is the biggest problem for koalas. Yeah. You know, the, it's not yeah. just that the bushfires are happening, but it's that people are building roads. Koalas are being yeah. knocked over by cars and vehicles, aren't they? There are signs on some roads in Australia warning people, you know, don't drive over koalas. You know, they plod across the roads. They're not exactly scurrying from tree to tree and um as the trees yeah. you know the trees are being cut down they're um they're they're, they're in trouble yeah and so, those signs are so beautifully designed that they're now a kind of uh um souvenir for a tourist who then screw okay. off the sign and, and put it in the suitcase and bring it back home which is uh, terrible of course and dogs yeah. seems to be a problem dogs also kill a lot yeah. of koalas and that is one of the one of the reasons why they can't live in in cities because they they don't care too much about cars and people walking around because they're they're kind of you know they're they're so friendly and sleeping but they need the trees and they need an area where there's no dogs so that's that's the two reasons why you don't see them very much in the in the urban sites yeah it's strange being an animal that can sleep for 20 hours a day isn't it i wonder how many you know how many animals in their life cycles could risk Sleeping twenty hours a day. I mean, sometimes I can manage it almost, but um, you know, I don't, <laughs> there are not many. I don't have many natural yeah. predators here, you know. But, no. but a koala sitting up a tree, obviously, is fairly lucky. And as they say, you know, their digestive tracts, like you're talking about, they, they they spend such a long time digesting it because what they're eating is actually poisonous to most animals. Yeah, and they got specialized um, digestions, don't they? That means that they can 
get rid of the chemicals that would otherwise kill them and they'd stuff themselves full of eucalyptus leaves and, and just go to sleep. Yeah, yeah, it's a lovely story. Yeah, you, yeah. What you say reminds me a bit of the sloths that you have in uh, countries like Costa Rica. And so they're also extremely slow. They just decided not to burn any energy, so they don't need much energy, which is also a way of surviving, which which is also an attractive thought, I must say. <laughs> and um, So staying with the good news, I, I, was, I, was, I was reading this story about um, uh, the the first green palm uh, oil state of, of Malaysia, so the state of Sabah, so one of the two uh, states that Malaysia has um, on, uh, on northern Borneo, and they are really aiming to make uh, palm oil more green. And that means first and foremost, of course, not cutting, cutting more uh, rainforest, uh, but uh, it's it's a much wider project where they also uh, where they cooperate between governments and between the big business, but also between the, the small uh, landowners and uh, doing everything to certify that the palm oil that they produce is actually um, uh, sustainably uh, produced, kind of ESG policy on on palm oil and uh, Reuters had a good uh, good article about it and so that is that is good that we see some progress there because palm oil is of course typically one of those stories that is that is ruining our planet and we need it in everything you probably even before you have breakfast each and every one of us has already used a few products with palm oil in it it's in 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 anything the the uh, margarine you put on 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 your toast. It's in in the soap you uh, need to wash, and are probably uh, each each and everyone's bathroom is full with products full of uh, palm oil. And um, I think in in the Netherlands, I noticed when I was there last time that they have uh, palm oil-free products that are actually advertised as uh, palm oil-free uh, butter for frying, for instance. And um, uh, that's also a positive trend. But I think it's good that, that a state in Malaysia that is producing about 6% of all global uh, palm oil is, uh, is working on this, this image. Yeah. yeah, it's great, isn't it? Because there's been so much deforestation to clear land for palm oil plantations, which are really, you know, produce a lot of this stuff that we consume in the West, I was, I, was looking at, um, I was looking at a website from the WWF which sort of lists some of the things you have it in, like you were saying, and it's in lipstick, pizza dough, instant noodles, shampoo, chocolate, margarine, detergent, ice cream, cookies, biodiesel, soap and packaged bread. You know, it's, it's sort of everywhere. And they say that you know, part of the problem with, with ensuring that you can trace palm oil, whether it's come from sustainable sources or not, is that it, it's labelled often just as vegetable oil on the back of packages. So there's not enough, uh, yeah. you know, there's not enough um, labeling to say where, where this has come from. And as you say, there's a movement, which is kind of consumers waking up to the environmental, environmental risks that putting pressure on companies to, to outlaw the use of palm oil from non-sustainable sources. Um, so this is really good. I mean, because we, we all see these photographs, these pictures of, you know, orangutans, hanging from trees in, um, in, in Indonesia or, or Malaysia indeed and, and where, the, where the deforestation is being carried on and it's, uh, it's a terrible, ter- these are terrible scenes, aren't they? 
But yeah, of course, yeah, you know, these countries need to earn something. Yeah, yeah. I have <laughs> these pictures of uh, uh, an Utan actually fighting with the machine that is trying to destroy its 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 habitats. It's just so sad to uh, to see that. Uh, yeah. Which is most likely, I think, in uh, in Sumatra. It's, it could have been. There's, I think, there was also urang utangs on uh, um, on on Borneo. But I think the scene that 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 went viral a couple of years ago was uh, was somewhere in in Sumatra. And uh, yeah, it's 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 incredibly sad. And I think what you yeah. say about labeling, that is something where where we could really really make progress. We we should be able when when we buy goods. That we get much more, much more inf- information about uh, what the environmental impact is of of whatever we are buying, either in a positive or a negative way. And there's just so much cheating and lying and greenwashing going on. Um, the, for instance, uh, tuna. For those of us that still eat fish, um, tuna is advertising on its cans that uh, it's friendly to dolphins and that comes from the story that if you if you uh, catch tuna that there's a lot of bycatch of dolphins that are just just drowning in the nets and uh, that is that's absolutely greenwashing there's only one area in the world where dolphins and tuna are swimming so close together that there's actually a problem with dolphins dying because they are hunting tuna but if you catch tuna anywhere else in the world there's basically zero risk for dolphins so to put on a package uh, of of uh, of tuna uh, that no dolphins were hurt is you might just as well say no elephants were hurt when we were <laughs> catching this tuna it's it's just yeah it's true but it doesn't mean anything and i i think that kind of of manipulation of uh, green and sustainable feelings, there should just be an authority that 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 regulates this and makes makes it more fair and especially more transparent. Yeah, yeah. The story you were you were reading from Reuters was talking about how you know there is the Kuala Lumpur-based roundtable on sustainable palm oil, which is meant to be a global watchdog. It's got you know four thousand producer, trader, retailers, and advocacy groups in it apparently and um, you know let's hope they can do something to sort this out I mean it's it's also over in Glasgow of course at the COP26 summit um, more than 100 nations promised to halt deforestation by 2030 that's an awful long time away for some of these forests but uh, but still you know I think let's hope that people are waking up more to this and if the producers themselves which who are, who are there are, are feeling the pressure to to do the right thing, then then maybe there's a way forward here. It's, yeah, it's I hope so too. Although that that promise in Glasgow was was basically overlapping an older promise already, so there wasn't too much new in it. So making a promise, breaking it, and then doing it again, it's <laughs> you know it's what you do as a little boy when you're <laughs> naughty. Your mother, you tell your mother not to do it anymore. Uh, but as grown-ups and as countries, I guess we 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 should we should change our act and, uh, and become better. What else yeah. did, we, did we see in the news? Um, so, well, the next one was about the Olympics that are starting next week, oh, yeah. the, the, the Winter Olympics, wasn't it? Um, I mentioned that in the tweet that we sent out. Yeah, indeed, where are we yeah. on the Olympics? The Olympics, so the Olympics, um, the, the study was, um, uh, there was a study this week, or a few days ago, talking about how climate change is making it 
more and more hostile for the Olympics to be held. Um, the snow is just simply melting away. You know, some of these, the, there have been 20, when Beijing now hosts the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, it'll be the 21st town or city to have hosted the Olympics. But, you know, if climate change gets bad by the end of this, by the t end of the century, most of these places won't be able to host it any, anymore. The snow will be gone. You know, you'll have to be, I don't know what you'll be doing. There's either artificial snow, but it may be too warm even for that. So the same that Sapporo in, in Japan will be the only one where it has reliable conditions um, with, 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 um, with high greenhouse gas emissions. So we've, this is another reason to get hold of climate change, isn't it? For those um, that love sports, yeah. Un unless you say, well, we do all uh, the normal summer Olympics in these 20 cities that uh, now have the, the winter facilities because it gets so hot in the places where, uh, where you would do the summer Olympics that they would go to these cool places. But yes, there would be a very cynical approach, of course. Um, yeah. If if that would be uh, the uh, uh, the cause of what we do, and then there's also the artificial snow. The use of artificial snow is also increasing every year. I think Beijing has now decided to use only artificial snow for the first time. I think in the previous one it was like 90% already, and now it's it's like 100% artificial yeah. snow. Um, and the skiers hate it because it's uh, it's when you fall it it gives it gives burns and it it it's it's not um, as soft and and, and 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 fluffy as real snow. Yeah, I like going out skiing. Um, I live here about a kilometer. I live in Oslo, and I'm about a kilometer away from the end of the the bobsleigh run that was used in the 1952 Olympics. Um, Norway is also the host was the host of the games in '94. You know, Lillehammer, which is, which you know, when I was there, it was minus 25 degrees one day. So it's hard to imagine that Lillehammer is going to be too warm. But you know, according to this, this these estimates here, it'll be marginal by the end of the century. And all the other places that have been holding the the games, you know, Vancouver, Squaw Valley, Squaw Valley, Calgary, Salt Lake City, Lake Placid in the state and in, in the in the in North America and all the European resorts like Turin and Innsbruck and Cortina yeah. and Sochi, they're all going to be just unusable. And, wow. and as you say, there's all sorts of things that are going wrong. It was interesting also you mentioned, you know, you're going to have to host the, the Summer Olympics there because that's actually what happened in Sapporo, wasn't it, last year? Do you, do you remember yeah. the, 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 Japan, the Tokyo uh, Summer Olympics yeah. It was so hot there that they had to relocate the marathon runs to Sapporo on the northern yeah. island of uh, yeah. on the Japan's northern Hokkaido island, and and Sapporo is going to be the only place suitable for the for the Winter Olympics, or the mountains around it will be the only ones suitable for the Winter Olympics. So they're already overlapping. And yeah. um, reading about those marathons, you know, there were uh, some of the. It was so hot those days. They started the race at. Uh, six in the morning for the women's race because there was a wow. heat wave in Sapporo. So we're, we're in trouble here, aren't we? For... We, we are in trouble. Well, yeah, this is indicative. I hear people going on skiing holiday and then complaining that there's no snow. So um, especially for those that do that by plane, that's a bit cynical. So you you fly to your skiing destination, ruining the climate, and you arrive and you say, hey, the climate is not good anymore, so now I'm flying back. 
it's uh, it's it's a sign of times um, that uh, that we are in deep uh, yeah. deep trouble indeed. Yeah, and, and there's of course also the the uh, talking about sports. Uh, there's of course the Europe, the World Championship football coming up in Qatar, which then move to the cooler season at at the end of the year. Um, but still, yeah, that might also be quite a quite a thing. Of course, those are countries that become unlivable later in the century because it, it just gets so extremely hot. Yeah, and those stadiums are kind of designed to be air conditioned at ground level, aren't they? Even when it's hot, you know, yeah. you've got to turn on the air conditioning to keep the pitch cool. I guess yeah. when they're holding it in November, aren't they? So yeah. it should be cold enough by then. And another thing that struck me about the, the study of um, Olympic cities, Olympic towns too, was that, of course, the Paralympics are held after the Winter Olympics. And so that's even later in the season, into into March, when it's yeah. starting to get warmer. So, you know, the risks to the athletes, um, you, know, you know, the athletes go barreling downhill, don't they, in, yeah. in, the, um, in the skiing events sometimes. And there's, the, there's many, many more injuries in... Um, winter Olympics and then in summer Olympics and they seem to yeah. be getting worse according to this study perhaps because of this you know this problem yeah. is, as you mentioned the, the the artificial snow is kind of I don't know it's icy lumps aren't they so they feel yeah. it feels different from like the nice soft snow that you yeah <laughs> it works more like of. sandpaper when you when you fall on it Ooh, yeah yeah <laughs> talking about flying to skiing holidays there's the ghost flights Indeed, yes. <laughs> that is that, that is outrageous. If these numbers of Greenpeace are correct, that we talk about 100,000 ghost flights uh, flown across Europe this winter just because uh, there is the EU airport slot usage rules. Simply put, uh, if you don't land there uh, a number of times in a certain period at a certain airport, uh, then you might lose... Uh, your right uh, to fly on those airports. Just as a bit of background, I just decided two days ago uh, not to accept uh, a luxury invitation to fly all the way to Greece, uh, to the Delphi Economic Forum, to give there a speech about climate change, and that came with uh, my flight and many nights in a beautiful hotel covered uh, because I found that I shouldn't fly halfway around the planet to uh, talk that uh, to give talk that we should fly less it uh, would be very hypocrite if i would do that unless i would have other good reasons to be in europe and i didn't so this was the only reason that i would fly back and forth and i said i'm not gonna do that please find somebody in europe or in greece that can give the very same speech and i'm willing to help but against that background, I would have loved to be, in, who, who doesn't want to be in Greece in spring, actually outside, it was yesterday, a chill factor of minus 38 at the warmest moment of the day. Um, in that context, reading about 100,000 flights taking place that are absolutely unnecessary only uh, because of, uh, uh, of, of, of rules being set, uh, that should be the utmost priority for any politician in Europe that uh, wants to, uh, to 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 keep up his or her credibility. What do you think? Well, congratulations first, Alex. That's a great that's a great thing to say no to. I mean, there's um, 
I must say, um, I regret it already. I would have loved to go there. <laughs> I guess if it's so cold where you are right now in Canada, it's so it would cold be, here. It sounds pretty attractive, yeah. I'm here in Oslo and it's been above zero the last couple of days, which means um, that it's uh, just icy outside most of the time. We've still got about 15 centimeters of snow in the garden, and I don't think they could be holding the Olympics here this year up the road. So, um, yeah, but well done there. Um, but you're right. This this story about ghost flights in the in the um, in the European Union is it's just crazy, isn't it? It's um, it seems like I think in the states that the um, they they've they've dropped that um, requirement to to preserve slots for for a while at least. So the airlines I think we did in Europe these... too. It, it, we we dropped the benchmark to fifty percent, and then it went up to sixty four, ah, but right, still. Yeah. Uh, uh, just dropped that benchmark. I know, yeah. I know. I saw, I saw there was a quote from the head of Lufthansa, Kushan Spord, who told a newspaper a while ago, we have to operate 18,000 additional unnecessary flights in the winter just to secure our takeoff and landing rights. But it, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But then, you know, you see the European Commission, I think, says that there's no evidence that this is happening. They're kind of trying to throw it back onto the airline saying, you know, you're just not attracting enough paying customers, um, which sounds pretty strange. And then there are the, the budget airlines who say, look, if you big guys, uh, the Lufthansa's, uh, the, the big sort of previously, you know, state-aligned airlines in Europe can't fill up their fill up their slots, then, well, we'll, we'll take over. We'll fly people around for a few euros. Um, yeah. And, and we, we'll, we'll do it, you know. So, you know, forget these rules. Um, it's a way just for the old airlines to keep their grip on the best landing rights while these other cheap airlines are flying to out-of-the-way airports, although I think that's that's not happening at the moment, is it? Because pretty much every air, airport in the world is um, operating at very reduced capacity. I see that Gatwick has been using just one terminal of the two that they normally offer, that they normally use. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a confusing story, this, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, I must I mean, say, as a voter, I find it also confusing that uh, to see that the first thing that my government did, but that any government in, in, in at least the Western world, but probably worldwide did, when the pandemic broke out, was to use taxpayers' money to keep those airlines alive. And mm. I perfectly understand why, because if the neighboring countries do it and you don't do it, then then you lose your your, your national airline. But collectively, worldwide, we are subsidizing the wrong thing. We should use that money to build fast-speed railway lines and, and, and do other things. Yeah. It's amazing how quickly, though, this uh, this idea of, I don't know, I think it originated in Sweden, didn't it? The word flea scum, which is yeah. flight yeah. shame. Well, it was um, Greta Thunberg who started yeah, with it. Started yeah, with it. And yeah. It was, yeah. It, uh, but it's strange how, you know, when that first came up two or three years ago, People sort of said, "Oh, this is crazy! You know, nobody's going to nobody's going to change their behaviour to reduce their carbon footprint by not flying." But now, when everybody's been grounded by the pandemic for for two years and more, uh, you kind of get used to the idea that hey, it's it's quite nice looking up in the sky on a nice blue day and seeing that there are no contrails, no white lines across the sky, and no noise. And um, yeah, you know, maybe I don't need to go there. We've we've been in. Norway for, for for the last two years, pretty much, and it's a great 
country it's a beautiful country to go traveling around and um yeah you know, and so there's so much you can do over land so i'm because of, of of family and work reasons i am either in europe or in canada but the way i try to do it is i reserve my flying practically only for transatlantic flights so in the continent when i'm in northern america i try to do everything by car <clears throat> by lack of railways here and in, in europe i travel by railway and um, uh, and when I'm on one side of the ocean, I stay there as long as possible to avoid flying back and forth in, in between. That's the reason why I stayed four months in Europe in the summer. Uh, just because I had a meeting in Geneva where to go to by train, and that's why I, I stayed there so long. And um, I think people will also rediscover the beauty of train travel, which is so much so much nicer. You don't have all those endless security checks, etc. You just sit in the train and it slowly brings you there. You can read a book. You can look out, out of the window. There's much more to see. And there's the kind of old romantic idea of going through Europe by train. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And you can step out wherever you like. When I came back from... Geneva, I made a 24-hour stopover in uh, in Paris, what I could never do if I would be flying, um, to no extra cost at all. You were passing through anyway. That's nice, yeah. I mean, Greta Thunberg managed to cross the Atlantic, didn't she, with a, on, a, on a racing yacht a, few, a couple of years ago. Yes, um, and then the whole crew I had to fly in and out. And <laughs> <laughs> but no, she made, a, she made a good statement. I mean, it was I, a good I, statement, wasn't she? Yeah. Was on, unfortunately for her, she was on the way to Chile, was her main destination yeah. to go to the COP, uh, what was it, 25, I suppose, which yeah. then had to be relocated to Madrid. So she yeah. kind of crossed the Atlantic to... For, no real reason, although she did give a very good impassioned speech at the United Nations, didn't she, where she glowered at Donald Trump and yeah. told us all, how dare we? Um, yeah. So, yeah, but, yeah, there's was was probably quite a lot of emissions involved for the, for the, for the crew, weren't they? Yeah, yeah and it's, uh, but, but the, the point she was making was, of course, it, 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 was a good, it was a good PR thing. And I think if you're in a position like she is, uh, any single step that she takes, anything she says will be criticized. There's there's professional people out there to constantly creating negative stories about her. And then as a very young, young woman, she, she gets all of that uh, all the time. That must be a horrible position to be in. And yeah. I really admire... Uh, the movement that she has started. And, and actually, although I've been active on these issues for, for, for many, many more years, I'm, I'm very impressed by what she's done. And, and she has actually changed my thinking on environmental issues. She has pushed me further than, than where I used to be. Although the flight chain that you mentioned is something that uh, – I felt already much longer. So I decided already some 10 years ago that I would no longer fly business class, even though it's quite often offered to me. And I just uh, refused to accept it. And I asked that they give me then an economy class ticket uh, just to not to take two places in the airplane instead of one, which makes it, it makes it extra painful to read about these 100,000 flights in Europe that are just taking place with, with for nothing. 
Um, I could have enjoyed, you know, the luxury of business class. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Not many people are offering me business class tickets at the moment, though. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, but it, you're right. She's changed a lot of people's thinking, hasn't she? I think she's amazingly admirable, the example she set. And yeah. to stick to it, like going across the Atlantic yeah. on a yacht like that, which must have been pretty uncomfortable experience, um, you know, with... Um, that's, after all, not far from where the Titanic sank. <laughs> she was going past Iceland and places like that, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and not just Greta, but also the youth movement all over the world. I mean, there's now so many climate leaders, uh, so many youth climate leaders in, in basically each country everywhere in the, in the world. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, the youth is uh, giving a good example to, uh, to our generation. Yeah. So we need to look at... Um, what else do we have here? We got a story about methane, yeah? Uh, record-breaking, yeah. So never before, at least in, 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 in our human history, has methane reached uh, the, the, the milestone of 1,900 parts per billion uh, in the Earth's atmosphere. So if, if you um, compare that to what it should be, what it was before the Industrial Revolution, it was 700. So it went from 700 to 1900. So that's, let's say, uh, uh, two and a half uh, times increase. Whereas, uh, let me see if you would look at uh, CO2 that uh, went something from, um, uh, let's say, about like, 280, I think, yeah, on top of my like head. Yeah. Parts per million, uh, per million in this case, no billion, um, uh, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution to where we are, which now roughly whatever, 4 or 15 or something. So that is that is less than doubling. So methane is going really, really fast. And uh, and, and methane is uh, an, an incredible, potent uh, greenhouse gas uh, in in. For the first few years, it's something like 80 times as, as effective as CO2 in trapping heat. Uh, the only plus side of the methane story is that it, it breaks down much faster in the atmosphere. You talk about, I read somewhere, nine years. Other writers talk about uh, decades, uh, whereas we talk uh, at least about hundreds of years when we talk about CO2. So that is the advantage that if you stop emitting methane, or methane, I think is the right pronunciation, um, excuse my Dutch, um, then uh, then you can quickly lower that number. And there's a lot of ways that we could do that, I guess. That's and right, uh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, methane, methane. I don't know. I think we kind of, it's like tomato, tomato, isn't it? I, don't think, I think we could we could pronounce it either way. It's something that's yeah. called the evil twin of carbon dioxide, isn't it? Because it's um, much, much lower concentrations, as you say. They measure it in billions parts per billion but it's much more potent in the in the shorter term and um, I mean there are again there are some good news there's some good news here you know the um, countries joined something called the global methane pledge at the Glasgow summit last year um, to uh, have a collective goal of reducing emissions by at least 30 percent from 2020 levels by 2030 um, the trouble is that one of the problems there is that it's a global pledge. We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do the global emissions, but we won't commit individually to cutting our emissions by 30%. That um, reminds me of the Paris Agreement. We 
all of us agree that it shouldn't get warmer than uh, than, than than preferably one and a half degrees. But we we don't say who's doing what. Yeah, exactly. It's a bit of, it's a bit of a cop out, isn't it? It's all very well to say, well, we did our best, but um, those other countries didn't do so well. Um, but but you know, there were there are of course these are all still words on the page. Um, um, but you know, it is a pledge. I suppose they put it in writing. With any luck, you know, in the same way as that consumers can say, wait a minute, why have you still got palm oil in my soap? Um, in in a few years' time, people will be able to say, why have we got methane um, still coming out of the ground? It comes out from a lot of oil production. There's a lot of leaks from oil and gas production. It's the main, you know, it's, it's the main constituent of um, natural gas. And it comes out of bogs and marshes and... As we say, it comes out of the digestive tracts of um, livestock, which is another way of saying that it comes out in burps and farts from cows and uh, sheep and 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 livestock. Um, methane is is you know it's it's kind of coming out of everywhere, unfortunately. And you don't it's like carbon dioxide; you don't see it. Um, but there were you know there are, there have been some advances. You know the United States and China put in their joint declaration at at um, uh, the Glasgow summit again it's just still words but they said they'd do stuff to fight methane yeah <laughs> so so basically there's there's two you can roughly say there's two kind of sources there's one where we intentionally go uh, looking for fossil fuels and anything related to fossil fuels and 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 abandoned uh, fossil fuel winning sites etc um, uh, can can create methane, and that also includes our own way of living with our waste, etc. Um, and then the other group, you could say, is the more natural kind of methane. For instance, a, a marshland or a wetland uh, that uh, that that creates methane. So, and it's difficult to do something about those 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 marshlands. But the more clearly human cost uh, methane should be uh, should be high on the priority list so as you say to to plug gas leaks and with landfills you can just cover those landfills and and catch up uh, the gas you can actually uh, reuse it again or at least make sure that it isn't um, get, getting out in the environment and uh, the burning of crop waste uh, is is another big one of course and um, coal mines. Coal is already a very bad thing, but the coal mines itself also they need to be ventilated, of course, otherwise the people die who are in there. But that ventilation brings out a lot of uh, methane that should have been caught off in, in 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 some kind of way. So there's in that field we can do a lot. I think the the, the big risk is, of course, the methane. Uh, Coming from uh, from permafrost lands in in Siberia and northern Canada, which is especially in Siberia, it's 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 huge. And the warmer it gets, the more methane gets out. And the more methane gets out, the warmer it gets. So this is a a, a, a positive feedback loop with extremely negative consequences. And mm. the only way to stop that is to make sure that it doesn't get warmer. And we might pass a tipping point there where at a certain moment uh, so much of that methane is released that that there's no way that we can stop it anymore. Yeah, it's terrifying, isn't it, that thought? And um, 
it's also under the seabed up in the Arctic as well. Nobody knows really how you know how much methane could could suddenly bubble up from the seabed if the, if the ocean becomes warmer. You know, the, we're heating up the planet, and the the uh, you know the, the heat is gradually sinking to ever deeper water levels, isn't it? And um, when this if there's a lot of you know uncertainty about whether or not the methane trapped in the seabed where it's frozen will be released by the warming of the ocean above it. Um, in some places, of course, north of Siberia, the sea is relatively shallow and the sea has been there for, you know, only a few thousand years because of the melting of the ice sheets raised the sea level. So in a sense, the, the water in contact with the, the seabed might have already started to release this, you know, thousands of years ago. But of course, it's a problem that there's been no measurement so, yeah. you know, the, the shortage of measurements, we've been doing this, trying to measure the release of methane from some of these sources for just a few years. So it's very hard to tell whether it's getting worse or um, we're, are we reaching a tipping point? It's it's a frightening thought, but, you know, maybe we are, um, maybe we're not. I don't know. The scientists are very disagree about that. So one of the tipping points we, is, you know, yeah. only afterwards that you pass one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And of course, with methane, I mean, since a lot of this comes from agriculture, of course, we can change our diets to have a, a less methane, methane-rich diet. You know, that means yeah. less meat, less dairy, I, I suppose, in some ways. Yeah. 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 Because the, the stomach of a cow, the stomachs of a cow, you should say, they just work like, like a wetland. So a, a cow is a walking wetland, I read somewhere, <laughs> and I thought that was a, that was a good quote. Um, Talking talk about the whole climate change deal, uh, there was, of course, uh, the, the COP26 president, uh, who is still the COP26 president un, un, until we start COP27 in, um, uh, is it Sharm el-Sheikh? It's, it's, uh, it's in yeah. Egypt. Or is, in yeah, Egypt, or yeah. yeah. Sharm el-Sheikh. It's somewhere in Egypt. I think Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, so Alok Sharma, so he gave a speech this week. I think you followed that one. That's right, yeah. Alok Sharma, I mean, it, 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 we were joking earlier that... Um, there's a link back to the koala story here because um, you might say that it, uh, his his name is actually an anagram for climate change harms koala. Um, harms koala is an which is an true. Of, of harms koala, Alok Sharma. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very rare name that has the letters of the word koala in it. But anyway, he gave a speech um, earlier this week um, saying that the deal that we'd reached in Glasgow was fragile. And still really just words on a page is what he said. So it's tying back to what we had a chat a couple of weeks ago about the World Economic Forum where they listed the main risk to the planet um, going forward. The main economic risk to the planet in the next 10 years was inaction on climate change. So, you know, he gave this speech where, um, you know, he says that the commitments we secured at COP26 in Glasgow were historic Yet at the moment they're just words on a page, so it's it's quite it's quite interesting. I don't know what sort of power he has to get people into gear, um, but he says, you know, if we if we don't get on with this, we will have mitigated no risk, we'll have seized no opportunities, we'll have fractured the trust built between nations, and 1.5 degrees will slip from our grasp. So he says that his his focus as the president um, this year. Is on delivery, and in a way, this is this is good that he's keeping up. I think um, 
you know, Britain is a yeah. what I don't know a, a, a diminished power, but it still it still has a certain clout in the world, I think. And what happens often with um, COP presidents um, is that they they kind of hand off the baton already at the beginning of the year to the next country and say, well, it's it's your problem now. So the fact that he's he's saying these things, I think, is quite at least you know recognizing the depth of the problem and that we've got to get on with this because we're on tra- trajectory for um, for messing up the messing up the carbon emissions absolutely terribly in comparison with what you know the uh, the United Nations says to get on track for 1.5 degrees we're going to have to pretty much halve emissions this decade and they're rebounding after the pandemic cut them fairly sharply in, in 2020 they rebounded last year and they're likely to keep going up i suspect this year as well aren't they yeah they will they will uh, the international energy agency expected to go up and normally their <clears throat> their predictions are right which is of course uh, really sad so in a way it's a bit of a repetition we agreed in paris to do all kinds of things uh, we we haven't lived up uh, to our promises and then we had the all important uh, uh, COP26, uh, where we should update our promises. We, as countries, we collectively in the world hardly did so. It wasn't completely useless, but it was a fraction of what should be done. And even that fraction that we agreed upon is uh, is now not being taken serious. So it's... Uh, uh, it, I, I still feel that our leaders in the world... Um, don't don't take the risks serious enough, and that they uh, that they still feel that it doesn't matter too much if you do something now. You can do it in in with your next government in four years' time, uh, as you can do with any other problem. If you have to decide on 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 whatever on the school fees or on whether or not you're going to build a road or uh, or or the new agricultural policy or whatever. You can normally, it's it's a well-known trick of survival for any politician, independent of the system that you rule your country, that when it gets difficult, you normally postpone it and it, it solves your problem. Um, but th- that is not a policy that is normally used by the fire brigades uh, or or by the Green Berets or something. Uh, when you... when the, the going really gets tough. You have to act, even if you don't know all the facts, even if you don't know exactly what's going to happen. You have to act uh, and and uh, and do whatever you can to avoid a disaster. And here, a disaster is unfolding, and the reflex that comes up all over the world is like, "Oh, this asked for another meeting. Let let's sit together and put something on paper, and then later we can see whether we do it or not." instead of really taking action. So I think his role is really sad. I mean, he, he is he is really trying his utmost, and he did so during COP26, and I think he, he, he couldn't have done better, although I'm not happy with the result. And mm-hmm. um, it's, uh, it, it's, yeah, I think it's, it's really good that he stays on a kind of uh, mission to keep people... Uh, alert on what's going on and, and that we should work on this uh, but it's a sign of times that he has to do it uh, that's uh, that's a bit uh, sad meanwhile yeah. I think we, we already talked for a long time, there's one more thing that knowing that you've been in the Antarctic and that you've reported about it um, 
there's this huge chunk of Antarctic ice that broke off and was floating in 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 the ocean. I know it's your story because you've you've worked on it on the past. Uh, uh, tell us about what's going on there. Thanks. Yeah. So this was um, yeah. I went to Antarctica. This part of Antarctica, fairly close by to where this iceberg broke off. This iceberg broke off in 2017 from the Antarctic Peninsula, which is the bit that sticks up towards um, South America. I visited the British Antarctic Survey's base on the other side of the Antarctic Peninsula back in 2009, um, where we flew around and um, landed on an ice shelf that was close to breaking up and did indeed break up uh, a few months later. The Wilkins uh, ice shelf. The Wilkins ice shelf, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it broke like a windshield, like they're worried that the one be even bigger further south, the, the Thwaites, may do. Um, so, but the, this one, this one, this one, they didn't link it to climate change. They'd said that, you know, icebergs break off Antarctica all the time. Um, the ice is flowing off the center of the, the continent and it flows downhill with gravity. It's just compressed snow that gets covered up by more snow and then it gets weighted down and turns into ice and it slides off and these icebergs break off regularly but this one was just enormous you know it was um uh, the sixth largest iceberg on record um um the, the biggest one ever was the size of jamaica um which was in 2000 but that's 11,000 square kilometers this one wow. was slightly was a bit smaller um but it's it's um it's it's broken up flows out to sea and then heads off northwards up towards um, uh, South Georgia. There were worries that it could run aground effectively on some islands where it would be difficult for seals or penguin colonies to get out to sea. This huge, great lump of ice would be in the way and prevent them from from reaching their feeding grounds. Um, And it's actually one of the problems with it is it's pouring fresh water. I mean, it is just melted snow it's pouring as it melts these icebergs are, are melting into into the sea and adding fresh water which may be disrupting um the, the growth of plankton and marine life um when i was in antarctica actually they they had a project there where they were studying the seabed for the way that when icebergs come into bays um, of course, you only see a little bit of the ice above the above the, the waterline, and most of it is below the waterline. Nine tenths of it almost is below the waterline. So these things, they come in, icebergs float in, and the keels, the bottom, they use the word for the bottom of a ship, the keel then grinds along the seabed. And of course, if you're a crab or a, a sea urchin or some seaweed that's in the way of that, you're just obliterated, you're just smashed by the way these icebergs flow in. So that's a big danger with these huge icebergs that they can just grind their way across the across the across the seabed and just uh, just destroy everything, kill everything that's there. That of course creates, you know, nat- it's a natural process, so it creates new habitats that quick thinking species can come and reoccupy it. But of course if if climate change becomes worse there's going to be more and more and more of this ice floating around and then scouring the seabed and and filling up the southern ocean with with fresh water um you know this this iceberg was called rather unromantically um a68 but now it is no longer 
So that's kind of good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was equal to 61 million times an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Uh, so that's an enormous amount of fresh water being released uh, uh, in the midst of the, the Southern Arctic Ocean. So what happened to all those penguins that were on? They just jumped off and swam back to to, uh, to the Antarctic? Or no, what, I mean, what happened? <laughs> I don't know the penguins were on the, on the iceberg. I hope they weren't. It's pretty tall to climb up there. I, I think that the, their worry was that the islands in South Georgia could be if this huge great wall of ice came and landed straight in front of their colony, oh, yeah. then they, they wouldn't be able out. to get around it yeah. to get to the to get to to get out to their fishing yeah, ground. Because today. there's an enormous amount of uh, of sea life uh, there on 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 the beaches uh, of of South Georgia. Yeah, it's, so this is yeah, where it's a hundred miles long. Yeah. Uh, it's where Shackleton landed when he uh, sailed. What is it? I think 1916 when he sailed in this uh, little boat with just six men um, from Elephant Island uh, all the way to South Georgia um, to find help for his uh, stranded crew on uh, on Elephant Island, which is uh, one of the most adventurous uh, books you can ever read, books about uh, the second trip of, uh, of Shackleton. So yes. he, um, he ended there on the south side and then had to climb all over um, South Georgia uh, to uh, to end in this uh, whaling station on the north side and uh, and go for help. Hey, this was fun. Uh, we've been talking nearly an hour, um, always longer than the forty five minutes that uh, that that we aim for. Um, a bit of good news, uh, a lot of worrying news. I think that is uh, that is probably the mixture you normally end up with when you talk about climate change. Um, I hope that uh, we will live today that we have mostly good news because that means that. Uh, the tide has turned around and that we actually uh, do what we what we should be doing and that is uh, fighting climate change because we need it for the future of our planet and for the next generations and actually it's getting so dire now we need it for ourselves too so let's hope that um, each small activity including doing a podcast about these issues helps a little bit to convince people to uh, to move forward in the right direction i would like to thank the audience the audience that's there now uh, thank you for listening and also the audience that will listen in the days to come to this uh, podcast, which is often many times larger than the people that listen to uh, the live version. Uh, but it always encourages a lot if you see people uh, joining uh, live uh, from uh, different places in the world. I see people from uh, both America and Europe that are uh, listening to us now. So they're the, the friends of this podcast. Thank you for being there. Uh, thank you, Alistair. You already uh, committed again to join us uh, next week, um, which is uh, which is wonderful. I hope that uh, those that are listening now and those that are listening in the days to follow, uh, that they also will join us live. It's the same time on the same day uh, next week. So uh, please, uh, uh, please come back here again. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Thanks, Alex. Bye. Bye, Alistair. Bye, everyone.